northwestern Pennsylvania, Rometown Community Church. I see some hands there. You've lost things. Uh, one Sunday morning came time to leave for church. At least time for church to leave was getting close. And we couldn't find our car keys. Uh, they were not hanging on the hook by the door. Now, we should have a second set of keys, but those may have been lost previously. I don't know. Uh, we couldn't find, in other words, we couldn't find any keys. Now, have you ever noticed how Sunday morning is the time when things do get lost in your house? The kids can't find their shoe, or, or maybe you're in the car and you've lost one of the kids. They're still in the house. You've got to track them down. Well, uh, we tasted a little bit of that that day. So things were getting frantic. The clock was ticking. It was time to leave. I'm the preacher. I can't be late. I've got to get there. Now, Jill and I were tearing that house apart. Um, I began to analyze the situation as we were frantically searching. Now, the, our kids were really young then, and I pretty much eliminated them right off in my analysis. They did not lose those keys. I thought some more, and I also came to the conclusion that I had not lost the keys. <laughs> now, you can see right away where this is going. Uh, now, you know, it's really hard to be a pastor who is getting ready to go to church where he's got to pray and he's got to lead in worship and he's got to preach a sermon when he's concluded with some frustration that he hasn't lost the keys and especially when he's pretty much drawn, <laughs> drawn the conclusion about who did lose the keys. Uh, now, I began to talk to myself like I do in those kinds of situations and I pretty much said, Jim, don't even go there. It's not good. It's not wise. Definitely don't vocalize your analysis of the situation here. Uh, there's, you know, you've been in a situation like where there's just something that wants to say it. You, know, you, you want to spout your theory out. Well, I think I held in. But I tried this, and maybe you've tried this. Uh, you know, you use we. We're in this together. We're a family. We're not going to affix blame to any one person. Anything that happens, we lost the keys. Well, I tried that, but it didn't work. So uh, that was before cell phone days. So if we didn't leave, we were going to be late. And we knew one family that sometimes didn't get there on time. So we gave them a call. They didn't live too far away. So we got a ride to church that day. We never did find the keys that morning. Later that day, we did find those keys. And they were in the silverware drawer. How they got there, I don't know. And down to this day, many, many years later, I do not be, I hold to my theory, I do not believe that I put those keys there. <laughs> I haven't mentioned any names this morning, but, but that's beside the point. Because when we found the keys, Jill and I were, were so relieved, we were so happy. And you know the feeling when you've, lost something and you've hunted and searched and searched and finally you found it. I mean, it's one of the greatest feelings there is. Well, we're in a series right now called 360 Degree Faith, which means that as Christ followers, we are trying to see all of life in the same way that Jesus saw it, to interpret life 360 degrees, everything like Jesus interpreted it. And this morning, we're going to talk about how Jesus saw people, his view of people. And there's really one word that's used over and over again in the New Testament that captures his view of people. And it's the word lost. He saw people as lost. He saw us as lost. But in our lostness, 
He also views people as pricelessly valuable with a love that comes from the heart of God that we can't even imagine. That's how deep his love is. And that's the motivation that caused God the Father to send his eternal son into, into this world, to the earth. And his whole mission was searching lost people. And we're going to tell a story that Jesus, in fact, we're going to share a story that Jesus told about that in just a moment. But before we get to that, if you're here this morning, and maybe you are searching out this whole God-Jesus thing, maybe it's something that hasn't been a big part of your life, but you're searching, I just want to thank you uh, for coming and how, letting us be part of your search today. We're really grateful that you're here, and uh, hopefully uh, we could even become part of the answer to that search. And uh, I would encourage you, if you're searching these things out, get a copy of the Bible. Uh, if you don't have one, we have a bunch of them at the information desk. You're more than welcome to stop and just ask for one. They're, that's why they're there. Feel free to take one. And I would encourage you, start in the second part of the Bible, what's called the New Testament. That's where you'll first meet the first four biographers of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Start right there in your searching, and, uh, and then continue from there. But uh, feel free to grab one of those Bibles today. But we who are Christ followers, we've come to believe profoundly that Jesus Christ is exactly who he said he was. And that the written records that record what he said about who he was, about why he came into the world, those are absolutely reliable records about who Jesus was. That he came into the world searching for lost human beings. Now, let's take a look at the story. It's in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. And in the first two verses that should be up there on the screen, uh, the first two verses describe three groups of people that were in the crowd that day. Verse 1 tells us about the first two of those groups. First, there were the tax collectors who were there. Now, tax collectors in those days were considered to be the the worst sinners in Jewish society because they had begun to work for the Roman government who was occupying Palestine. The Jewish people viewed them as traitors because most of these tax collectors padded, you know, they, they overcharged so that they became rich off of the backs of their own people. They were outcasts. They were disowned by Jewish... By, there was no one who was more looked down upon condescendingly than tax collectors. But this passage says, strangely, that a whole crowd of tax collectors, they gathered, they wanted to come, they were drawn to hear Jesus. And then the second group, Luke just calls them sinners. Now what are they? Well, people who had more time for everything else in their life than really God. God was sort of neutral. They were, God, spiritual stuff was indifferent to them. They weren't really into spiritual God stuff. They were living their own lives, hardworking, certainly, uh, you know, not perfect, messing up, having some moral failures here and there, but overall, just living life on their own the best they could without, without God. But Luke points out that both of these groups, the tax collectors, the sinners, they were strangely attracted. They were drawn to Jesus. They enjoyed being around Jesus. It says they're the ones who gathered to hear him. 
Now, the third group, verse number two, these were the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders. Now, they were in the crowd that day not because they were drawn to Jesus or liked to be around him. In fact, they didn't like Jesus a bit. They had one reason for being there. They were in Jesus' presence that day to criticize him. And no one, and, and their Jewish religious leaders in Jesus' ministry, they mercilessly criticized him. Now, that seems all backwards. You would think that it would be the sinners who were the ones that would be criticizing this sinless, holy, pure man of God because they were irreligious. You would think they would be the ones that would be criticizing and, and, and upset with Christ. But it's just the other way around. It was the, you would think the religious ones would be the ones to enjoy being with him. But there was something about Jesus that the religious leaders did not like at all. In fact, made them furious. And I think it all boils down to the same thing. The same thing about Jesus that attracted the sinners is the one thing that infuriated the religious leaders. And what was that? Well, in their criticism of Jesus in verse 2, the, the religious leaders put their finger on this one thing. They said, muttering it complainingly, they said, this man who says he is God, he welcomes sinners. He even hangs out with them. He even eats with them. And so not only were the sinners drawn to Jesus, that infuriated them, but the thing that made them maddest of all was that Jesus was drawn to the sinners even more than they were attracted to him. They liked being with him, but Jesus loved. He loved being with them. And now Jesus goes into this story about his mission. You see, religion likes rules, but religion dislikes people. Religion is proud about keeping up its rituals and its forms and its habits. But religion looks condescendingly down upon people. Religion is critical. Religion hates, hates, but Jesus Christ loves. So what does that tell us about Jesus? That Jesus didn't come into the world to just spout out another kind of religion among the many other religions of the world. Jesus brought something different, and it attracted, it attracted people who you would think would be repulsed by what is holy and what is good. Well, he tells this story about how, how about he goes out and searches for lost people. And I think it's this love that we see in the story that is so attractive. Verses 3 and 4 talks about a shepherd who had a flock of 100 sheep. And he discovers that one of those sheep has wandered off and is lost. Now, in that day, uh, we're made to understand that a flock of 100 sheep, uh, a guy who had a flock that size would be a moderately wealthy person, a pretty well-to-do person. And so the crowd standing there listening and anticipating what Jesus was going to say in the story, they might have thought that his next line would be, well, I mean, okay, he's got 100 sheep, one of them gets lost. It can't be that big of a deal. I mean, one sheep among that many could probably be expendable. And they thought that he, maybe he would have had one of his hired hands just sort of go out and scan the nearby terrain and see if he could, by chance, find this sheep and bring it back to the flock. But that's exactly what Jesus doesn't say. In the story, 
the shepherd does not get a hired hand to go out and hunt for the sheep. He gets someone to stay with the 99 sheep that are safe, and the shepherd himself goes off into the wild to find the sheep that is lost. And he doesn't just do a little sweep of the nearby area. But verse number four, Jesus says that this shepherd, he goes after the lost sheep until he finds it, as far as he has to go to find this sheep. We're not told how many miles the shepherd had to go. We're not told the amount of time he spent searching, but we do know this, that the terrain in Palestine is pretty rugged. He may have been out there overnight. He may have been out there a day or two. Jesus says that this shepherd was completely determined to keep searching until he found this sheep And here's why. Because he knew this sheep was in big trouble, but he also knew the sheep probably didn't know it. Uh, Sheep are not known as the brightest animals on the farm. So this sheep probably didn't even realize the danger it was in, but the shepherd did. And you know, sheep are not equipped in any way whatsoever to be on their own. A sheep can't defend itself. A sheep doesn't have any fangs, doesn't have any claws, it doesn't have any sharp teeth, it can't roar. Even if a sheep tried to defend itself against a predator, what's the best a sheep could come up with? Bah! (laughs) I mean, that's my, that's the best a sheep can do. It, It can't turn and run. Sheep are weird looking animals, aren't they? They're not balanced. Uh... they wouldn't, they have no, they're they're totally defenseless. Have you ever heard of any sports team taking sheep as their team name or their mascot? Can you imagine the Chicago Blackhawks trading names and saying, you know, from now on we're going to be called the Chicago Sheep? That'd be a laughing stock, right? Okay. Uh, That's not going to happen, I'm pretty sure. But here's the point. In our lostness as human beings, we mistakenly see ourselves as strong and independent and self-sufficient. But Jesus is telling us that when we have wandered away from God, when God is not a part of our lives, when God is not the center of our life, when we've separated from the good shepherd, we don't even realize the danger that we have put ourselves in. What is the danger? It's the danger that comes from living separated from God. Not only in this life, but potentially separated from God for eternity. And, and stop it. You know, we don't often think about this probably. We're, we're very consumed with living this life and the stuff of this life and the demands of this life. But you know what? It doesn't hurt us once in a while to take the long view and to sit back and think about eternity and that we're going to be living far beyond the confines of the age span that we have in this life. How many heartbeats are we away from eternity? Just a few skipped heartbeats, and we're in eternity. How many breaths are we away from eternity? Just a few breaths. Phil knows this. <laughs> From what Phil went through this past week. Uh, we're very, eternity, we can be healthy one minute, and the next minute, we're facing eternity, eye to eye. And it's a very, very dangerous place to be. Separated from the shepherd, separated from God. 
But this shepherd who obviously, and everybody there that day gets it, the shepherd, Jesus is describing himself. He's the shepherd. The shepherd desperately loves people in their spiritual lostness to the point of going after them no matter how far he has to go. No matter the kind of sin that a person has wandered off to, no matter how far a person has gone away from God, Jesus tracks them down. He goes after them, wherever that is, to rescue them. And then in verse number 5, the shepherd finally finds the sheep. You know, when I was a kid, I remember seeing a picture of this. I don't remember where I saw this picture, but I saw maybe it was hanging in a house or something. I don't know. But I saw a picture of one artist's imaginary rendition of what it would have been like for uh, when, when the good shepherd found that sheep. And as you can see on the picture there, I think, uh, this sheep, not even knowing its danger, is about ready to go off a cliff. It's facing destruction. Here's the good shepherd entering into the danger and reaching down to pick that, to lift that sheep up. And that's a beautiful picture of how Jesus, why Jesus Christ came into the world. Because you know what? We sheep can't save ourselves. We can't rescue ourselves. We can't by trying to be good. We can't earn favor with God because no matter how hard we try to be good, there's, there's a list of stuff in our lives and about things when we haven't been good. And sin separates us from a totally sinless holy God. It separates us from him. So Jesus, the sinless shepherd, son of God, came into the world and he tracks down every human being to give them the opportunity to allow him to lift them up. And it's a beautiful picture here because Jesus lifts that sheep up now, you, you, you would think maybe the good shepherd would have been really upset with this sheep for causing him such, you know, grief. What's Jesus do? He doesn't throw a rope around the neck of the sheep and then sort of grudgingly, harshly drag the sheep along back to the flock. He doesn't do that. He doesn't treat that person condemningly, condescendingly. What does he do? It says he, he took the, she, uh, the sheep, he lifts them up and wraps them around his shoulders and then if he walked, if he had to go 10 miles, 5 miles, whatever he had to he carries that sheep the entire way back to the flock. And then when he gets back there, the shepherd really reveals what's in his heart about this one lost sheep. He says, rejoice with me. He goes to all of his neighbors. He, he gets a big party going. Come and rejoice with me. I found the sheep that was lost. And then Jesus gets to his main point in verse number seven, which is this. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Can you imagine uh, every time a person comes to God, every time a person comes to faith, realizes their need to come back to the Lord. Jesus says there's a party that breaks out in heaven. It breaks out among the angels, but you know what? Who breaks out mostly among? Well, in this passage, uh, 
If you were to read on, Jesus follows this story with another real short story that makes the same point about a woman who lost a very, a very valuable coin. And she searches her house upside down, hunting for that coin. And when she finds it, she has this same rejoicing, this same rejoicing attitude. And in verse number 10, this is what Jesus said, very similar to what we've just read in the sheep story. It says this, in the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Read very carefully what that says. It doesn't so much say that the angels are rejoicing and having the party. It says that there's some that the angels are observing the rejoicing. It's done in the presence of the angels. So who's rejoicing? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's God that leads the way in the party. It's God who's shouting for joy in heaven every time a person, one person, anywhere in this planet, realizes I'm lost, I need God, and they come to Christ and allow Christ to lift them up and bring them back to God. Jesus used the word repent here. Every time a, person, every time a sinner repents, what does that word repent mean? Well, the word meant to turn around and go a new direction. It came to mean the idea of confessing sins because when we come to Christ, we realize we've sinned and we're lost and separated. What we, we turn to him away from our sins and say, Lord, forgive me. And Jesus is able to do just that because at the end of his mission, the end of his mission for searching for us was he paid the price for our sins. He was sinless. He went to the cross. He took the blame for all of our sins so that he can lift us and bring us back to God. And all of our sins can be forgiven when we place our faith in him who died for our sins. That's the most wonderful news in the entire world. Um, you know, there's a fellow uh, in Minneapolis who is now a pastor. His name is Peter Haas, H-A-A-S. If you want to Google this guy's story of how he came to Christ, I encourage you to do it. Uh, Peter Haas, just Google that. Uh, pastor in Minneapolis, put it on there. You'll, you'll get this story. But um, I heard about Peter just oh, a couple of weeks ago. And he's now pastoring a pretty large church in Minneapolis. But that isn't the way it always was in his life. He was lost. He was, he was really lost in his life. And what he was a few years back as a young guy, he was a DJ in a nightclub. And one night, uh, his, he says, he was standing up in the, sort of the balcony or the upper level. He was looking down on the dance floor. And in that particular night, half of the people down there were drunk. But they're gyrating, it's just going nuts. I mean, and, and as he stood there looking at this, the thought occurred to him, you know, <laughs> there's got to be something deeper than this. <laughs> there's got to be a little bit more meaning than waiting for Friday night just to come so I can go get bombed. And, and there's got to be more to it than that. And so while he was standing there in that balcony, he just made this prayer. And it was sort of like this, God, I don't even know if you're up there. I don't even know who you are or what you are. Maybe you're Buddha. I don't know what you are or who you are. But if you're up there, 
reveal yourself to me. Show me the path. What, what's going on? What's the truth? Well, he decided to go outside and have a smoke. Um, he, hadn't, he was on his way out to get a smoke. He hadn't walked 30 feet before some guy walked up to him and out of the blue grabbed, him by the, grabbed his arm and said, uh, sort of nervously, like he didn't want to say this, but got the words out, uh, Jesus told me that he wants you to follow him. Now, this guy was shook, but he, he said to the guy, wait a minute, wait a minute. What do you mean? The guy thought, the guy thought he was mad he was going to punch him or something like that. But he said, no, what do you mean? Jesus told you to tell me to follow, that he wants me to follow him. Uh, well, long story short, you can listen to it. It's a nine-minute testimony. Uh, and, uh, but long story short is that the guy, that, that very nervous guy who stumbled over his words, prayed with Peter that night. And Peter just extended his search to God, God. And now his search was narrowed down to a person, with, to a God with a name, Jesus. And uh, over the next weeks, months, he connected to church. He began to learn about Jesus, read the Bible, understood. Finally, he came to Christ. And now, a few years later, Peter is leading hundreds of people to Christ throughout the city of Minneapolis in churches that are planted all over the city, all over the Twin Cities up there. Uh, that's a story of a lost person being found by a searching God. And th that God loves every human being just like that. And if you're here today and you are, have a question mark about who God is or what God is, I want to encourage you if you search for him, if you reach out to him, make it specific, reach out to Jesus. Jesus is resurrected. He didn't just die on that cross. He rose on the third day. That means he's alive. That means he can reveal himself to you, make himself known to you, uh, just as he did to Peter Haas. So rejoicing in the presence of God over one sinner who repents of their sin now, there's two messages here this morning, two challenges, and then we're going to wrap this up. The first one I've already sort of alluded to. If you're here this morning and you have felt like God has been speaking directly to you, that you have wandered away from him, and you, you believe that you are lost spiritually, he is that one who's here for you this morning, reaching out his hand to lift you up and bring you to himself and to offer you complete forgiveness of your sins and the start of a brand new life in which you will come to know the presence of God, a life in which he will begin to heal your deepest wounds, your deepest needs. He'll bring people, healing people into your life, healing resources. He'll fill you with God's purpose and plan for your life. So your life isn't just an aimless walk in a fog. He calls you to repent and receive Jesus Christ. And so I want to stop right here. This is the challenge, the first challenge. I want to I stop and pray right now for any person that's in this room who may never have 
come to Christ in this way. But you want to today. So I'm going to ask us just to bow our heads. And I want to make the prayer very specific. So if you feel like this is you this morning, while all of our heads are bowed, and you would like me to remember you specifically in prayer, would you lift, just quickly lift your hand up long enough for me to see it? And as I pray, I'm going to be remembering you. I really appreciate that. And I appreciate this person responding and right here and several okay I see a good number of people lifting their hands this morning all right well the Lord sees that we're going to pray right now I'm going to ask the whole congregation to follow me in this prayer just pray phrase after phrase with me it's very simple heavenly father thank you for sending Jesus to search for me, sending him to the cross to die for my sins, for his resurrection. I come to you now, Jesus. Forgive me of my sins. I give my life to you. Give me everlasting life. You are my Lord and my God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 Now, that's life's biggest, biggest decision right there. The Lord has lifted you up as a result of that prayer. And now he wants you to grow in that and nurture that. And there's a few things I would mention. Number one, if you made that decision today, share that with somebody. There's something about that that just settles it in your heart. The second thing you may want to do when we have time at the end of the service here, for, we invite people up to, to be prayed, to have someone pray with you. This may be a day when you want to come and share it with that person and have that person pray with you about this huge decision that you've made. Third thing, like I said before, get into the scriptures, especially starting in the New Testament. Start to grow in your faith. And then find some other Christians that you can connect with. A small group, one of the small groups here at church would be a great place. Begin to grow in that faith. And a whole new life, a whole new life is laying right there in front of you with Jesus leading the way. Now the second challenge that comes out of this story today, I believe speaks to those of us who are already Christ followers. About a about a couple high priorities in our lives. Number one, there's something that missionary, our missionary Fauzi Arzuni said last week that about what the top priority of a Christ follower is. He asked this question last week, those of you that were here, he said, why did Jesus leave us Christians? Why did he leave us here on earth? In some ways, wouldn't it be better after we receive Christ if Jesus just sort of pulled us out of all this trouble and pulled us, pulled us off this planet, we're, we're now ready to meet him. And he could spare us a lot of pain if he would just, you know, take us straight to heaven, right? Okay, but Jesus didn't do it that way. So why, what did he leave us on the earth for? What is our purpose? What is our top priority? Well, then he, he listed some answers. Uh, is it to study the Bible? Okay, now studying the Bible is absolutely essential. But is that our 
main purpose for which Christ left us on the earth? No. Because we could do that. We could learn truth much better if he'd have just taken us straight to heaven. We could learn it much. We'd have it all down right now. Okay? Or, okay, did he leave us here so we could worship? Okay, worship is profoundly important. But you know what? We could do a lot better job worshiping if he'd just take us straight to heaven. You know, we'd be there with the angels worshiping right now. Okay, why did he leave us here? He left us here to do the one thing that we Christians cannot do and will never be able to do when we get to heaven. That is, share our faith. Take the message of Jesus to a lost world, to our friends, to our neighbors. Bring, bring the message of coming into this wonderful kingdom of God to the people around us. So God left us in a suffering world, in a world where we face pain too. But he did it so that we would have this, this same mission in our hearts that, Jesus, that brought Jesus into the world. The same reason Jesus is on the earth, to, to seek those who are lost to lift them up, to bring them to salvation, to bring them to hope, to God. That's exactly your top priority. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ today, your top priority in living in this world, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, is to be an influence with those around you who do not yet know him. That's the top priority we have. Through, through the way we live to be a witness and as God opens up conversations with people at work, with neighbors, with friends, where we can even tell our own story of how we came to Christ or of what Christ means to us. Or we can maybe invite that person to come and check out a church service with me sometime and I'll take you out to lunch or breakfast or brunch afterward. That, that's why we're on this earth. So how did Jesus view people? Every single day he was on this planet, that was what motivated him. As he, when he went out in public, when he went to, you know, I was going to say, when he went to McDonald's, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, that's a plug for McDonald's if Jesus went there. But anyway, uh, you know what I mean. Wherever he went, okay, and wherever we go, uh, the person behind that desk, do we see that person like Jesus sees that person? Do we reach out? Are we looking for an opportunity maybe to encourage, maybe even have an influence with that person? And the people we build relationships with at work, why do you know, we build relationships so that the, the friendship they have with us be, can become a friendship with Jesus Christ who lives in us? That's why we live on this planet. It's revolutionary. And I think sometimes we Christians can get so much into our Christian living that we forget that. We can get into our Christian habits of going to church and worshiping and reading the Bible and those things, absolutely essential. Don't stop those things, okay? Keep them up. But you know what? When it's all said and done, the reason we worship and stay close to God and the reason we study his word so we can know him better is why? So that we can fulfill this top priority of making him known to other people. That's our mission. That's our mission. So personal witness, that's our, our top relational priority. But there's another, as Christ followers, Jesus also said something else about it that fits into this top priority. We not only have, our, not only is our top relational priority that of 
caring and loving and reaching out to people that don't know him who are lost. But Jesus said in Matthew 6.33, and we've been saying this the last three or four weeks, so important. In that chapter, Jesus is talking about making ends meet. Food, clothing, shelter. He's talking to people that struggled to make ends meet. Jesus had been a carpenter. He knew what it was to struggle to make ends meet. But yet Jesus stood in his very first sermon in front of all those people and he said this after he talked about the struggle of making ends meet. He said to them, his followers, if you will seek first the kingdom of God, then all of these things, food, clothing, and shelter, making ends meet, my father, he will get involved in helping you make ends meet if you will make your highest priority. And what, was he ta- what kind of priority was he talking about there? Well, he was talking about heart, time, energy, everything we are, including financial. If you will make your top financial priority the spreading of the kingdom of God, getting behind the church family you are a part of, then he said, God will be involved As you give, God is going to be involved in helping you earn, helping you make ends meet. When it comes to making, when it comes to a Christ follower's financial priorities, here's what the Bible teaches. I want to give it to you just as clear as I can and as quickly as I can. The Bible teaches that when we become a follower of Christ, it teaches the tithe. That's the basic level of giving for a Christ follower. The Bible teaches us many, many times over that the tithe is the first 10% of our net income. We give it for the work of God's church. And the tithe comes into the local church to help the local church in its own area spread this message to support all the ministries that that, that get this message out. The second thing is, the second kind of giving is mission giving. Mission giving is sacrificial giving above the tithe to help support our 39 missionaries who are involved all over the world sharing this message to lost people. So it's the first 10%, and this is something I've practiced all of my adult life. I would never ask anyone who's a follower of Christ to do something I'm not doing myself. Uh, Jesus did this. He's the one who taught this. Mission giving, then some of us have a greater capacity to go beyond the 10% and give to missions. Uh, Some of us can't give as much as others. Some have the capacity to give more than others. But the main thing is, guys, as, as a follower, and if you're not a follower of Christ here today, if you're just seeking out this whole thing, this doesn't apply to you. Jesus did not say to people that weren't his followers, hey, I want your money. You know, the biggest thing in the world thinks, you know, the biggest uh, downer that the world has about churches is all they want is your money. Okay, that's not all that the church wants. Here's what the church wants if it's, if it's lined up with what Jesus wants. The church wants to get this message to its world, and it takes money coming from Christ followers to get that job done. It does. It takes a good amount of money. And if we're all faithful... If we're all doing our part, 
The promise is not only is the word of God going to get to be spread and lost people are going to come to Christ and become part of his flock, but the byproduct of that is we've just opened the door because we're trusting him. God is going to get involved in helping us stretch our dollars, get involved in making our ends meet more than we could ever do on our own. That's the promise from the lips of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I want to challenge every Christ follower in this church this morning. If you're a new Christian, maybe, and you haven't begun to practice this in your life, I want to challenge you today, flat out. Trust Jesus and see if he doesn't keep his part of the bargain on this matter. And the reason I speak so passionately about this is because I know God is doing great things through Calvary Church. He's doing great things. But he could do a lot, 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 lot more if all of his followers here were involved in in this commitment of giving, seeking first financially the spread of the kingdom of God. He could do so much more. And so it's heavy on my heart as your pastor, and that's why I share it this morning, but it's not coming from me. It, it's coming from the Lord for whom we all, we all live and serve. So I would like to lead, I would like us to pray a prayer of commitment on this. And I'm, ju- I'm just going to lead us in prayer right here. Heavenly Father, we are thankful this morning that you love us. You love us so profoundly that Jesus came into the world seeking us. And Lord, I pray that we who have been found, who are now followers of Jesus and living by his commands, putting our trust and faith in him in those commands, that we will share our faith as our highest relational priority, bring people into our lives that we can just talk to about Christ and invite to church, have an influence with. Father, I also pray this morning that we would take to heart this very practical issue of making our first financial priority, the spreading of this message of Jesus Christ through the church, through our missionaries, in the ministries that are sustained only by the giving of God's people. Give us that vision, Lord. Give us that passion. And Heavenly Father, we're just gonna, we, we just thank you for what you're doing, and we're going to thank you for the wonderful things yet to be done through your church, through this church here at Calvary. And Lord, we give you praise. We give you thanks. Lord, you know the struggle it is to make ends meet. And you know the struggle of the people to whom I'm sharing this in making ends meet. But Lord, we're looking to Jesus who promised that our Heavenly Father is going to get involved as we are faithful to this commitment. So Lord, help us, enable us, and give us the courage to take that step. Father, Thank you for each one who's here today. And, and may you, Lord, be uppermost in our hearts. And we give you praise for these things. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen. 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 Well, we are going to uh, worship the Lord.